Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey opened the darn gardens, Knockreiner. He says while wearing Apple earpods with an Apple iWatch and an iPhone in his pocket and his MacBook on his desk, and probably a couple of iPads. Next to a Windows gaming computer and a bunch of uh, developer mode quests that I can sideload whatever the heck I want, and an Android tablet that's literally sitting right next to my uh, iPad. I'm a multi platform person. I even have Linux machines on my desk. (laughs) On today's episode, we will be discussing Apple slowly starting to bring down that walled garden. Uh, before that, though, we'll cover a pretty sizable information breach at Mercedes-Benz and a series of vulnerabilities affecting a popular remote access product from Avanti. With that, let's go ahead and, I don't know, wall climb our way in. Yeah, sure. yeah. Or sledgehammer on in. Sledgehammer through the wall. Mr. Tim Cook, tear down this wall. (laughs) As an aside, while I do have two real Linux servers, the only reason what I said was accurate was my Steam Deck, which, frankly, while it's a Linux computer, it's not really (laughs) the Linux computer most people are thinking about. Nope. So let's start today with a... uh... A story involving some what's turning out to be pretty high profile vulnerabilities, at least in terms of like the attention they're getting and some of the impact or uh, attention they've been receiving from government agencies like CISA even. And the story all kind of starts on January 10th, where Avanti disclosed two vulnerabilities affecting their policy secure and connect secure appliances. Uh, first one was CVE 2023 46805, which was a authentication bypass vulnerability in those products. Second one was CVE 2024-21887, which was a command injection vulnerability uh, in those products. And Mark, Um, I would argue that it might have started a little before January 10th because uh, part of this was actually caught as zero-day vulnerabilities being exploited. And I think that's what triggered eventually... Exactly. Avanti releasing their advisories for those two particular CVs you mentioned. Yep. So it was originally detected as a zero-day under active exploitation by a a suspected Chinese-based threat actor. Um, When those two original vulnerabilities uh, were exploited together, it basically gave an unauthenticated attacker full code execution on the uh, underlying system. Yeah, basically Uh, one one was uh, access without authentication. And the other one was privilege elevation to administrators. So those were the two ones afterwards that on the uh, twenty or the thirty yeah. first that they disclosed. Also, um, so I guess if you're not familiar, real quickly with um, Connect Secure and Policy Secure, Connect Secure it's a like client SSL VPN appliance. Oh look, macOS still does the fancy fancy little thumbs up emoji thing, um, and. Policy Secure is a network access control enforcement solution. And both are, like by nature, typically exposed to the internet, especially the Connect Secure appliance, because it's a VPN endpoint. Um, so along with that original advisory on the 10th, uh, with the first two vulnerabilities, uh, they published a XML file that administrators could import into their affected products, which partially mitigated the flaws with a trade-off that it kind of degrades some of the other functionality on the devices. Um, as you just hinted at on January 31st, Avanti published a software update mitigating those issues 
and they disclose those two additional vulnerabilities, one of them being a privilege escalation flaw and the other one a server-side request forgery uh, vulnerability. So four in total now that they've resolved. Um, along the way to that, though, on January 19th, uh, CISA published an advisory, uh, actually technically a, uh, what do they call it? A, uh, not an Emergency alert, directive? A mandate directive, that's oh. the word. Um, requiring agencies to immediately implement Avanti's mitigations no later than three days after the fact, so January 22nd. They also required agencies to immediately download and run Avanti's external integration checker tool and required them notify uh, any agencies, notify CISA, uh, and remove those compromised products if they find that they were compromised. So that was CISA's first notification on the 19th. And then just on the 1st of February, so after... Avanti, or no, on the 31st of January, alongside Avanti's product releases, CISA immediately published a supplemental directive that required all agencies to that use Avanti's uh, products to immediately disconnect all of them from their networks, uh, back up the configuration, factory reset them, uh, upgrade the firmware, rebuild device, and re-input the, uh, the configuration that you backed up uh, no later than February 5th, and then report that back to CISA, uh, the, proactively report the status back to CISA. So from a government perspective, like CISA is taking this extremely seriously. And uh, they've got authority, I guess, under a section of the US code that grants the Department of Homeland Security and by extension CISA, the authority to issue these emergency directives to uh, federal civilian executive branches and other government agencies. And they definitely came out gun swinging with short timelines on to address the flaw, which makes sense because they even noted that uh, basically you should assume that the device is compromised by this point if you have not already mitigated it uh, or installed the updates or reviewed it yourself. And we've said it repeatedly, these kind of remote access or VPN flaws are in, they're like highly targeted nowadays and any sort of gateway that does remote access or VPN. Uh, yeah. So I, I, a side tip is just, you know, whether it's a WatchGuard Firebox, a third-party network device, a Cisco VPN filter was the botnet from back ago. If you have VPNs, uh, whatever vendor you use, you know, hopefully they have pretty good secure code. Like we have no known VPN issues to worry about now, but we've patched some before. So definitely pay attention to any vendors you have that provide VPN and remote access. And I'm sure we'll talk about other mitigation like Avoiding only publicly, like full internet exposure of VPNs should or, or remote access should be limited. And for things like VPNs that might require it to be, you know, exposed, you do have to patch, but you should also maybe add other mitigating factors like MFA or some additional authentication before people get to the page, even if possible. Yeah, it's tough because like these devices, they're supposed to be exposed to the internet. That's the whole dang point of it. Yep. And that's why these vulnerabilities Remote are access. so critically sought yeah. after. Yeah. Um, and, and by the way, system... even without a vulnerability, sorry, it's just, it's good yeah. to know that credential theft and, and stuff is, is very big too. So as you're talking about something that has to be exposed, even if there's a not, not a vulnerability, it's why identity security, MFA, uh, really strong factors, adding hardware factors to your MFA or push authentication with things like OSPoint, very important too. Because even without a vulnerability, these remote access points to your point, Mark, of just being designed to be public are always kind of a, a obvious way in. 
I'll say that uh, even though CISA's advisories were specifically orders to federal and government agencies, uh, if you are a, a customer of one of these devices, you should still follow the exact same guidance that are in these advisories, these alerts, uh, because it's genuinely good recommendations. Uh, one of them being assume any domain credentials that you've used with these devices are now compromised and take steps to uh, basically reset the passwords and uh, revoke Kerberos tickets and do everything you can to protect those or revoke access those accounts may have given. Um, but like at a minimum, feels like like if organizations are going to be deploying remote access tools, like they need to, this is definitely an area to add even more oversight than you normally would potentially yeah. in terms of like auditing what's going on with these devices and looking for suspicious activity. There's a lot of new advice on identity, not necessarily keys, but identity that if you have MFA, you don't really have to rotate credentials very often, which might be, I mean, the key is if you have MFA. So MFA is one extra mitigation, but these devices have other key and secret material that's not attached to a human and, and rotating that actually is still probably important. And I remember, yeah. I, I won't throw out, because I don't really want to sh throw shade towards competitors, and some of the other past VPN issues we've seen being exploited by state-sponsored actors, a well-known next-generation firewall company had a big vulnerability, but it was fixed years before uh, the exploit started happening even more. And part of it was they were even getting into devices that had had the patch for the flaw that originally let it in. And it, I think that was one of the times it made clear the point you're trying to say. What happened is they got in long ago and they stole all the secret and key material. So even after you patched, if you hadn't you know, rotated the keys, they had the new way in. I mean, they could get in. Yep. So it's very important to remember, like even if you patch a, a big vulnerability, uh, if, if someone did use it during the time period, the vulnerability window, you know, super important to rotate all that secret material. 100%. Um, so if you are an Avanti customer, make sure you check out their advisory. CIS's advisory is pretty useful as well, too. Quick, quick aside, uh, if you're a WatchGuard customer, our patch management module uses a Avanti-owned SDK, but it is not affected by any of these vulnerabilities. These are specifically in their remote access products, uh, not in that SDK. So we're good to go. Um, moving on. So the second story I wanted to chat about a uh, bit of a short one, but I think it highlights some weaknesses in software development that still continue to go overlooked. Uh, so this starts where researchers at the attack surface management uh, company Red Hunt published a blog post last week uh, describing a data leak they found involving Mercedes-Benz, the uh, automobile manufacturer. Uh, I guess Mercedes has made other things historically. Didn't they make a bunch of tanks for Nazi Germany as well, too? But present-day so. automobile manufacturer and Formula One team. Is that why you prefer Audi? Is it because of that past? <laughs> Not so Pretty big? sure Audi is... I like Mercedes now, <laughs> but I'm glad. I, I don't know if I support anyone helping Nazis make tanks. Uh, Modern Germany, low, I'm okay I'm sorry. <laughs> Mitsubishi, they make tanks and great TVs and somewhat questionable automobiles. So everyone's got their, their hand in the... Uh, the war machine cookie jar, but that's not what the story is about. So uh, Red Hunt uh, started their analysis when one of their internet scans identified a GitHub token that had been leaked by a Mercedes employee. Uh, through their timeline, they said the token was uploaded 
to GitHub on September 29th, 2023, and it was discovered by Red Hunt on January 11th after running a routine data leak scan across GitHub. And then through their analysis, they found that this token gave basically unrestricted and what they called unmonitored, which I'm not sure how they validated that, but unmonitored access to the entire source code space hosted on Mercedes-Benz internal GitHub enterprise server. Yeah, that unmonitored, uh, can we pause there just because it's weird and I don't know if we were planning on talking about it in the, the discussion yeah. part of this, but a token, uh, there should be an audit log every time it's used. And I think one of the most important things a SOC does isn't just to make sure that everyone has strong identities, it's to occasionally audit logins from privileged identities. And even if you're not monitoring real time, you should at least have audit logs that you could forensically go in history and look at. So is, do you think there's a little shade being run there on the on audit? I mean, the unmonitored, it suggests that either the audit logging wasn't enabled or found or or more, more likely that they're saying that there was no SOC, there is no actual monitoring of security logs or audit logs going on at all. I, I'm assuming We're speculating, by the way, audience. To, yes, so, total yeah. speculation. And I have to imagine Mercedes-Benz as a multi-billion dollar company has a SOC or at least a service proactively monitoring activity for them. I think what so they're getting my, at. Was, that's my question that? though, Mark. It's like we, you and <laughs> I, I do the same. I do the same and say enterprise, big money. They must at least spend a little bit on security. But I'm wondering if do some of these big organizations we just assume have the money don't actually have a sock. I, I don't know. I don't Possibly. know. That's why I'm opening up the speculation. I think we're both saying that even mid-sized companies nowadays, we're at the point where it's more about cyber resiliency, which is just a marketing word that's a, a buzzword that's you're going to get hacked one day. No matter how good your defenses are, no matter how diligent you are in security, a big part of cybersecurity is more about detection and remediation when something does happen. And the whole idea of cyber resiliency is not trying to have this arrogant thing that I can prevent everything. Yes, you want to try to prevent what you can, but it's more the understanding that you'll never be able to pre prevent everything. How do you become resilient to attack? So it's, it's the only reason I bring up the monitoring question, because I think every mid-sized organization needs to have monitoring, not just the prevention control, not just the audit log that historically tells us things happened, but needs to spend some time actually to be cyber resilient, making sure they're actively looking for things so that they can actually stop bad stuff before it happens. Yeah. Sorry. I, my interpretation was like everyone under the sun knows that you should monitor username and password authentications into applications wherever you can. Preferably have like proactive rules to look for things like password spraying attacks or potential account compromise. Like that's an obvious one Weird that, time logins. That, they, yeah. that they probably have, but you know, a username and password is not the only way to authenticate to different oh, yeah. applications. Tokens versus users. Yeah. And I have not, it's actually been a hot minute since I've looked through our own GitHub enterprise audit logs. So I don't know if it's true or not, but it's possible that like, you know, API based access or like token based access is logged differently. And maybe it was, you know, they had all the setup to look for like someone's username and password getting compromised. But Maybe they, they just weren't looking at token-based authentication keys. at all. Yeah, yeah, tokens. That could be where Although, I mean, that, that's the practical takeaway. It, whether it's in a separate place or maybe the audit log's the same, it's just not a user. 
not the same in the same place, but a different audit log for a token. I think the key thing here is is if if your guess is correct, and I I, I think we realize this at WatchGuard because we're starting to pay attention to uh, what do we call them service account authentication. Uh, which sometimes, I mean, service accounts can use a pack. They can look like a user, even though they're a service account, but some service accounts will have tokens or certificate logins. So I think the point you and I are both trying to make is wherever that is logged, whether it's with the users or not, it's probably even more important to pay attention and audit your service account logins and your any automated API logins that just happen from the different processes going on in your organization. Yeah, I mean, let's keep talking about it for a bit because there are five and a half different ways to authenticate to GitHub. You have username and password, which is hopefully backed up by some form of multi-factor authentication, whether it be the app or text message or whatever. They've got passkey, which is that that new like FIDO standard-based method of uh, authentication that some services are starting to adopt. Uh, you can authenticate with just a SSH key, um, which doesn't necessarily like it. The authentication itself won't have multi-factor authentication. Hopefully your SSH key is protected by another password locally, but that's one way to bypass MFA. Uh, OAuth application grants. So you know where you go and use your account to grant permissions to something else. It's effectively generating a token with a set of permissions that that token or app can then use. And then GitHub also has the concept of personal access tokens, which is like an API key. And they have two flavors. They've got a classic one, which is... You know, if you have that key, you have full permissions for the account, which it sounds like that's what this probably was. Um, but then they've got a newer one that they call fine grained, which is basically that token you can grant specific access policies to. Religious for example, too. it can only have write permissions to this one project, or maybe it can only read uh, out of this project. Maybe it can only be used for like GitHub automations or whatever. Um, so there's a bunch of different ways to do it, but many we- of these bypass MFA. And and that that I think is the key issue. Like the only one that company many companies are considering you should have MFA on is username and password. And I think that's entirely wrong. Now, let's put aside session cookie tokens or any there, there's a type of token that holds on to a session after the authentication which is its whole other bag of worms. But let's leave that aside. To me a pass key, a SSH key, those are those are factors of authentication. And I like pass keys because I will argue that, forget the MFA yet, different factors of authentication have different strengths, in my opinion, right? A password is only as strong as the user. A password can have a very low strength as an authenticator if the user makes short, crappy things, but it can have decent uh, you know, strength if someone makes a really long one. But either way, a password is stealable, so that affects its strength. A digital key, that by by just in its natural form is a little higher of uh, of of security just because that that key has a lot of randomness it usually has a public private separate part of it so a digital key might be a stronger factor than the password but stronger doesn't mean foolproof a biometric a biometric has been considered stronger in the industry for a long time than a password even though we're finding all kinds of trivial ways to bypass biometrics and some people are even arguing deep fakes are going to help pass biometrics even more. Uh, but like a passkey, a, a fully hardware-based uh, factor is a very strong factor. So I'm not arguing things like passkeys are cool factors to add, 
But I, I think my point, and Mark, you probably agree, is no matter which of these factors you use, every factor can be broken. Like we've proven they have vulnerabilities. Right now, passkeys are very strong, but say there's a RS, say there's a RSA level attack and someone steals the keying data or the seed data for all the different private keys that are associated with some FIDO-based authentication. So I feel like the fact that a lot of vendors say, okay, we'll allow, we, we have MFA, we'll do strong security for username and password, but let's just do passkey. And when you're doing passkey, that's good enough. I disagree. I like passkey, but I think passkey should be combined with other factors for MFA. So the good news is the passkey standard, like the trademark standard itself, does include MFA. Um, so the yeah. way that like I've been using it lately is my factors are physically having OTP. my phone and yeah. my biometric to unlock the phone. Yeah. Um, where the key it only authenticates successfully if I accept the push notification on my device and then clear it with a biometric. And that is while it is both handled by the same thing, yeah. it is still MFA, and MFA. there is no password involved in that too, which is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. passwordless um, MFA is beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, I think the big risks, and like even in GitHub and other similar services, are like API keys and SSH tokens, where you know they typically don't have a good set of eyes. In this case, it sounds like they were completely unmonitored. Uh, you, folks may not rotate them or have a good secrets management program uh, in order to even be able to rotate them. And so if they do get compromised, it's just as good as having a password and potentially even better because there's no MFA and it's probably not going to get caught or rotated uh, by the owner of it. Um, so I I hope that like this is a high profile enough news story that it's a bit of a wake up call to any like software developers out there to go revisit your uh, non-password based key material and see what you can do to secure it or rotate it. Um, By the way, I, I, I probably forced you into the discussion before we finished all of the story. There's one other thing I, that I don't know if you want to talk about, but I, I had like I have an opinion on for a discussion, which is the fact that Red Hunt coordinated with TechCrunch uh, <laughs> before the actual Mercedes as part of their disclosure process. And I, I'm so I'll go straight into my opinion. I feel like there's a little bit too much of crappy researcher media exposure going on here. Like there's a lot of research now where if you're going through well-known bug bounty entities like HackerOne or, you know, Google, what is Zero? You know, Google has a Project bunch Zero. of researchers that, and Project Zero is the intermediary with the actual vendor affected, even though there's a separate researcher behind that. So I have... When there's organizations that are all about uh, responsible vulnerability disclosure, like HackerOne or any other bag bounty program or Google, cool. You, you, the researcher having the vendor be contacted by them is great. But I, the fact that they did TechCrunch, to me, it's like they were looking for media attention right away. I, I don't know why. I don't know if TechCrunch is suddenly deciding that vulnerability disclosure, like are, are they going into bug bounties? Why did they contact TechCrunch before contacting Mercedes? And is that, I really, I think people that have listened to us for a long time, I respect uh, responsible researchers. I respect the people out there that are finding vulnerabilities and helping companies fix it. But I have a little bit of like, it feels ulterior motive to use TechCrunch as your intermediary, in my opinion. 
I, uh, so my initial reaction when I saw that was, okay, you know what? I understand. So Mercedes Benz is a massive company and it can sometimes be difficult to get a hold of someone at a massive company if there isn't like a well-documented way to get a hold of them. And so maybe you, you know, you lean on someone that can get a hold of them. TechCrunch is a, at least well-regarded or at least decently large tech publishing company. And so going through them to get a hold of a contact at Mercedes Benz to then try and do that responsible disclosure, like my, I was willing to give them the benefit of the doubt of they just needed help getting in contact with someone. Now that said, uh, it took me about five seconds to Google Mercedes Benz's uh, white hat vulnerability disclosure program, which includes full instructions on how to get a hold of them through security at MercedesBenz.com yeah. in order to report issues. And even if and so, you hadn't found that, Mark, I, I would have talked about like 20 years ago, the whole reason public disclosure happened was because even companies like Microsoft was ignoring it. So I understand the argument uh, because if in the past, I understand the argument because people like Microsoft were ignoring it and others like Oracle. So you had to actually call them out publicly in order to get them to respond at all. But I would argue today, that's not the case. Companies are hungry for it. Smart ones are transparent and quick about it. And you can almost always find a place to report things. And even if you report it to PR, it, like I feel like a true white hat researcher would send it to the company first and give them at least a week, if not 15, 30 days. And after non-response, to, respond. to yes. respond. And and after non-response, then go to TechCrunch. Then I 100, like if you have someone in this, a company in this day and age that is not responding to good security reports, that is a bad company that should be called out. That is a very bad security practice. So I get it then. But every time someone, there's a Travis Ormandy is a Google researcher that does this often. Oh, Microsoft doesn't care, so I'm just going to do it. Microsoft cares. They've made it obvious the past 10 years that um, like maybe they care more for financial reasons than security reasons, but either way, they respond to security researchers. So this argument that we have to do it because they're not going to respond or we don't know how to tell them, it, it just feels hollow today. It's something that happened 20 years ago. I, I just don't see it happening that often today. It is. And so there's a situation where maybe they followed that same path. Maybe they tried to get a hold of them, didn't get something, went to TechCrunch. But almost any researcher I've ever seen that had that scenario happen will detail that in their timeline. They'll and say, oh, I reached this out to Mercedes Benz. And yeah. after they didn't reply, then I went to TechCrunch. In this one, it was they found the issue and then four days later immediately went to TechCrunch. Frankly, that's started. how I noticed was their own timeline. I saw the TechCrunch yeah. in the, their our blog above and I, that made me curious. And I scrolled straight down the timeline to see, I, I specifically was looking to see the first announcement to Mercedes, a time period of nothing, and then TechCrunch. I yeah. looked for that in their timeline <laughs> and not seeing that is what triggered me wanting to go onto this little bit of a, a gossip rant. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, I am with you on that. Like Mercedes-Benz, to their credit, has a established vulnerability reporting mechanism, and it's seemingly a bug bounty program as well, too. And it looks like this particular researcher decided to just entirely bypass it and go the journalist route instead. So uh, feels yeah, weird. Not how I would have handled it. Um, I guess last bits on the uh, the issue. Um, so using that token, they were able to uh, leak data, including database connection strings. Uh, cloud access keys, blueprints, design documents, 
SSO passwords, API keys, and other critical information. So there was a whole lot of extremely sensitive data that these one simple mistake, this one simple key, effectively exposed publicly. Like if Red Hunt found it, anyone else could have found it. So at the end of the day, it's good they brought it to their attention. Kind of crappy they brought it to their attention through a journalist, but like, I think it's a great example of how a simple mistake of not sanitizing the code you push to a public repository for secrets could have a extremely damaging impact. Uh, I guess good news is if you are a software development firm, like there are, it's an entirely commoditized uh, sector now for doing code analysis to look for secrets prior to pushing it to a repository. Uh, and those types of tools are well worth their weight uh, in deploying to protect your organization. Yep. Um, so moving on, I think Corey, this is probably going to be your favorite story that we've had in a very long time. I can see you jumping up and down with anticipation right now. Um, so <laughs> uh, our good friends in Corey's favorite company, Apple, uh, just announced <laughs> <Don't say> that. <laughs> just announced new changes for iOS app developers and how they can deliver applications to EU users uh, to bring them in compliance with the upcoming EU Digital Markets Act or DMA enforcement that goes live in March. Uh, real quick before we in jump into Apple's side of this, uh, the EU DMA, if you're not familiar with it, it was passed in 2022. And it establishes this concept of gatekeepers for online platforms, which they describe as a company that has a strong economic position and significant impact on internal markets, has a strong intermediary position, meaning they can link a large user base to a large number of businesses. Um, and they're entrenched and in a durable position in that market, meaning they're stable over time. Uh, they I, established... I, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I, I so say if, if I were to simplify <laughs> no. a tiny bit, if we, we often talk about big, big platforms, platforms that have software for lots and lots of people, there's open gardens and closed gardens. And closed gardens tend to give people, give the developers even very little capability without approval of one big company to, to do stuff. And, and I, I would say at the highest level, DMA is more for open gardens so that there's not one big company gatekeeper preventing many software developers to get to a big user base. Yep. To give you some examples, they established Apple as a gatekeeper last September and listed the App Store, the Safari browser, and the iOS operating system itself as core platform services that would have to comply with the rules. They also designated Amazon, Meta, Microsoft, TikTok's parent ByteDance, and Google's parent Alphabet as additional gatekeepers in different spaces. And so once they've established them as gatekeepers, there's a new set of rules that these organizations must follow. For example, they need to allow third parties to interoperate with the gatekeeper's own services. Uh, they need to allow uh, their business users to access data that they generate in the use of the gatekeeper's platform. So they can't like you know hide all of the browsing and activity data from other people using the platform. Uh, they need to allow companies to advertise on their platform in a way that isn't that's transparent enough that they can verify the advertisements are working. Um, and they need to allow other businesses uh, to promote and offer. Uh, basically allow them to sell or make purchases or handle payment facilitation in a way outside of the in-app updates or in-app yep. DLC and in-app purchases like Spotify, being able to 
give you a streaming service, but also being able to sell you an audio book. Uh, yep. You could get Spotify and Apple before, but you couldn't buy anything through Spotify without Apple taking money. This would now allow Spotify to directly sell their audiobooks to you through their own app and not through Apple's ecosystem. And additionally, gatekeepers must not uh, treat services and products offered by the gatekeeper itself more favorably in rankings than similar services by other companies. They must not prevent consumers from linking up with businesses outside their platforms. They must not prevent users from uninstalling any pre-installed software or app they wish, which I love that one. And they must not track users outside of the gatekeeper's core platform services for the purpose of targeted advertising without consent. So this whole law, it's targeted specifically at these massive tech companies like Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, whatever, uh, with the hopes of pulling some of those bricks out of that walled garden, like you said. Um, and as a result, Apple will begin allowing what they're calling the alternative app marketplaces on iOS 17.4 in March, but only for European Union users. So us Americans are unfortunately or fortunately, however you want to interpret it, and I'll let you get to your thoughts on that, Corey, still stuck in that walled garden. But basically, this means starting in March, users will be allowed to download a uh, marketplace from that marketplace's website onto their phone. Uh, in order to be used on the iPhone, that marketplace still has to go through Apple's approval program. Users will have to give explicit permissions to that marketplace app to install device apps on the device. But once those permissions are granted, users can download anything they want, including apps that violate Apple's App Store guidelines. Um, and they can even set that non-app store marketplace as the default. So this is effectively yeah. a way to sideload applications yeah. onto iOS now in an approved manner. And that's really, we'll wait till the end of this. I think we should cover everything else in the story first. But that, that's really the conversation I want to have because uh, Apple's argument, obviously Apple has a financial stake in wanting a closed garden. By having a closed garden, they have a ton of control and they can charge developers what they want and get big royalties, which is obviously why developers, you know, while developers might appreciate and pay a little bit to be part of your publishing platform, they, they want it to be fair. So, but there are security connotations that Apple has always argued about closed gardens. And so when we finish this story, I think the big question is, is this, you know, Apple said, we can't do it because of security. We can't do it because of security. And I'm a weird person in that I prefer as far as freedom and 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 com competition, I prefer open gardens as a concept, but I think there are security benefits to closed gardens, so that's what we should talk about. But I also hear that as good as this sounds with what EU's won, uh, Apple has still found ways to kind of follow the letter of the law while still kind of finding ways to needle it, getting money from developers. So I, I, there's probably some more details about what is allowed, but how it's allowed, right, Mark? Yeah, and so I guess first things first, it's not like this is becoming the wild, wild west where literally I can create something, send it to alternative app store, and it's immediately available for download. Um, all applications still have to go through Apple's app notarization process. Basically how it works is you, after you've compiled your app, you submit it to Apple using your Apple developer account that you'll still have to have. They do some validation to make sure, you know, the obvious stuff, like it's not a remote access uh, capability for the phone. They make sure they scan it for malware. They scan it for anything strictly illegal. And then once it passes all of these automated and sometimes manual checks, 
they then cryptographically sign it so that it can run on the iOS device. That process is not going away. Uh, developers will still have to submit their apps for notarization and go through all of those security and other checks. It just means the distribution of that app can now come in through a different channel, through one of these alternative marketplaces. And so there's, while it does make it a little more risky that app has slightly less oversight on app distribution, they are still going to vet every single app that gets installed on iOS. All of them have to go through this process. So I think like the security risks of this are a little bit lower since that process is still there. So uh, can I argue on? one side against that though? Because <laughs> Apple's always had this vetting process on the closed garden. And I remember even before this DMA stuff, there, there have been cases where uh, uh, companies have wanted HTML-based ads in their apps or little update, like they're not full app update mechanisms, but they're HTML channels where the app could get a little bit of an update that it used real time. And every time there has been, not every time, many of the times there has been malware that made it into uh, the closed garden, it was through one of these advertising things and and or the HTML update. And the reason is, is because while Apple does vet it, if they can no longer deny external ads, if at the time of vetting, the ad, you know, usually that ad function is not even the app maker's ad function. They point to some ad marketing service that will feed random ads to it. And that leads to potential of malvertising coming in. So just yeah. the fact, even with the additional vetting, just the fact that things like ads are not going or have to be allowed and Apple won't, you know, how often is Apple revetting the applications? And does their vetting include real time paying attention to these ad channels to see if any particular one is poisoned with malvertising, which can happen at any time? It doesn't a lot of, I mean, usually the strategy is, Let's make the ads clean during this period of time while we're vetting the app, and then let's turn on the malicious crap later. And that, that seems to be how they bypassed even closed garden before. But now that I feel like the ads are more, there, there's no like hard, you can't do this at all. Uh, so they'll have to allow things that technically have update channels that could turn something that is okay into something that's more malicious after the vetting process. When I think even beyond like a technical, you know, malware style attack, like there's also the risk of just more scam apps in general. Yes. Like the app store itself, uh, the notarization process, it checks for like, you know, straight up malicious things, but it doesn't necessarily check the content of the app entirely. Uh, but the app store itself still blocks certain types of apps. Like, for example, you can't have like a, you know, buy cryptocurrency, whatever app on iOS yeah. as a scam. Whereas an alternative app store may allow that. And the app yeah. is, it will technically be notarized and valid because it's technically not malicious, but... It's like a rug pull scam. That bringing in a channel that allows people to social engineer you to do the thing that gets to the malicious purpose. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Yep. Um, so there's actually a few more security related items uh, that change too. But before that, there's a few just monetary items that Apple's changing, including uh, allowing uh, developers to use alternative payment methods as well too. So previously, everything had to use Apple's payment uh, uh, methods. They had to go through Apple's in-app purchases, whatever. There was that 30% fee that Apple would take off the, the cake with every single in-app purchase or purchase of an app. Apple is changing it up. 
Developers will pay a 17% commission instead of the normal 30 for any digital goods sold. There's a additional 3% fee if those apps do use Apple's payment processing system, but now they can use an alternative payment processing system if they want. Uh, that rate also drops to 10% for apps that are qualified for Apple's small business rate, as they call it. Uh, but the I think the most controversial thing on the, the money side is they're adding this new core technology fee for popular apps where they're charging 54 cents per annual app install uh, that now it only kicks in over a million over annual a million. installs. Yeah. But for things like Spotify, for example, which probably has tens or hundreds of millions of installs, 54 cents an install is going to add up real dang quick uh, as an annual fee for some of these developers. And I think even Spotify put out a a notification saying, oh, this is great. We can do stuff. But look how Apple is still screwing us with these fees. Yeah. Um, in terms of security updates, though, there was another kind of big one hidden in this announcement and that Apple's also going to open up to alternative browser engines now. Uh, so if you weren't familiar, like, yes, on iOS, you can get, quote unquote, Chrome, Chrome or Edge or Firefox, but all of them use rendering under the hood. Yeah. They're basically like a skin over the same WebKit engine. Now you can use whatever the heck you want. And so in theory, Chromium could come to iOS and we could actually get the true Google Chrome or the true Microsoft Edge that aren't using WebKit under the hood. That's an interesting one bad. because- Good and bad, right? Exactly. Like I, I like the competition. I say this as someone that still uses Firefox to try and keep that 1% market share alive so that Chrome doesn't become just the de facto internet browser. But- like I'd say that WebKit is probably very well vetted from a security standpoint on not breaking stuff in iOS and not opening up uh, avenues for attack. And, and, and even using some engines, filtering, like like yeah. making some web applications not possible, not even a vulnerability in WebKit, but just detecting and stopping it. It has some filtering, let's call it like a, a very basic positive WAF on certain types of web application attacks. So yeah, opening it up to others could open it up to the others' vulnerabilities in those engines. On the flip side, I'm sure we we would both agree we like Chrome and Firefox are good. To, like WebKit does a good job of paying attention to security for web application issues. And so we're saying theoretically, this opens it up to more attack surface. Definitely opening up to more attack surface is the true part of the security risk here. I feel comfortable with Chrome and Firefox though in general. I, I mean... Maybe they're not less used to the Apple platform, so we'll see how their engine does there. You know, maybe they'll have more flaws they have to fix over time as they get used to iOS. I don't know. And now that they have the option of putting their engine on Apple, but generally, I, I agree that it exposes more attack surface. But in this case, at least the ones I would use, the alternative I prefer, uh, at least does security. I would say even as equally as Apple, Chrome and Firefox seem to give a damn. I do. Yes. Yeah, so I agree with you fully that like just baseline Mozilla and Google are great when it comes to security, but like this will be a brand new offering. And yes. without that, like long tenured been looked at forever, like a brand new iOS engine is it's going to have some issues. I bet it's, it's just standard logic that when you make something new, the amount of flaws, whether they're vulnerabilities or just bugs are going to be higher until you have some time to mature your code on that yep. new platform. Exactly. Um, let's see, one more non-security related update. Uh, so Apple will allow EU developers uh, to offer in-game streaming or video game streaming uh, services globally. 
that was previously explicitly banned. Um, so I know Stadia is now non-existent, but things like Stadia, where you could stream an entire game over the internet from some server hosted elsewhere, that'll now be opened up. And then one that does have a potential security or scam connotation is EU developers can now offer NFC payments in third-party apps too. So previously, if you Ooh. wanted to do a NFC payment from iOS, it had to be Apple Pay. Now, in theory, you could download random other NFC pay application and use that uh, when you go to pay. And my concern with that is that does leave open a opportunity for social engineering payment or credit card stuff. Exactly. Um, especially when paired with third party app stores that maybe don't vet quite as well as Apple does for the content of apps. So that's another area to look into. So my question is, it sounds like Apple, while they're being forced to do this and are doing this, they're at least trying to take a few measures to keep some of their security. But albeit, I think we both agree that by being open, there's a little more attack surface there. So at this point, this is me kind of being uh, shady against, like, I don't know where I fall on this. Like, if this is true and Apple's been arguing forever, we have to do this for security. We have to do this for security. Now that they're forced into this, do you think European iPhones will suddenly have a rash of malicious activity, whether malware or scams and social engineering or not? Will we find that an open garden or a slightly more open garden is can be done securely? and still have the benefits or or will they suddenly have all the crap that we do see on android phones not because android phones are bad but just because openness does allow more attack surface uh, i don't know if you have thoughts there i i like i said my i i'm weirdly in the middle i i want to support open gardens i think they're the right thing for consumers and competitiveness and really the growth of innovation of technology when you have closed gardens companies aren't forced to innovate and do better because they control everything so I'm for open gardens, but I always have had to admit security was easier on Apple because of draconian things like closed gardens. So any thoughts? The, for, are they just going to get malware now? <laughs> well, so I think that this actually will end up benefiting security. Hear me out. So one of the trade-offs for a closed garden is so we're a security vendor. We would love to have a anti-malware engine that runs on iOS that has Absolutely. the right privileges to actually identify threats. Uh, but Apple heavily restricts permissions uh, that would be Kernel, very useful. Some of the key things yeah. that you need to really secure a device are very limited for, for understandable reasons. These, these kernel level yeah. accesses are powerful, but yeah, it's, it's very limited for but developers. They, they haven't exactly gone out of their way to create like even visibility uh, for a potential anti-malware engine on iOS. Yeah. On the flip side, Android, because it is basically wide open, while there are still some controls that Google does just for security and protecting the kernel, like, it's much easier to have a, a functional anti-malware engine that runs on it. Yeah. So from a security perspective, I, I don't like that we've been putting all our eggs in the Apple basket. Um, and just hope I, they have done a great job. Don't get me wrong, but hoping they continue to do a great job with no alternative options when it comes to security isn't my favorite. And so my, while this, none of these announcements said anything about exposing new, uh, you know, operating system APIs to facilitate stuff like that. This is at least like one brick taken out of the walled garden. It yep. could lead to more, more opens like that as well too. And if and I so were I, to share, I yeah. If, if I were to share my view, even though I, 
I believe technically there's now more attack surface on the iPhone. I'm actually hoping that we don't see many security things and even the extra security Apple does because then there's no more excuse. Then they will realize maybe we should open our gardens for positive things. Maybe security apps are something we should allow on phones and, and maybe it is actually important to have to earn our customers' business through competition rather than just forcing anything that threatens us out of our marketplace. Yep. Last question, Corey. When do you think United States folks will get this? This required a <laughs> act by the European Union. Do you think we'll ever get something aligned that no. would help us? We, we should have had GR version of GDPR two years ago. And until we get that, I don't think we're going to have something that I feel like Europe is trying to open gardens. But right now, the, the U.S. government, well, maybe not. Some, some parts of the U.S. government that stubbornly are blocking things are, are trying to give more power and tax cuts to businesses. So I think I might want to have to buy, like we've talked about, a, a European iPhone with a U.S. SIM card to see if I can... Uh, find some way to get an open garden here in the United States. I, so I wonder I wonder how they will restrict that. Will it be based off the device? Will it be geolocation or device? Will they check yeah. to make sure that like the SIM card is also European? They're Apple, like, so I feel like they will. I mean, they put a chip in their darn cables just to make sure that they get Apple licensing fees on third-party cables. They're the biggest a-holes in the world as far as making it hard to use standard things. I'm surprised. I mean, even the USB-C, which I finally love in my iPhone, is because they were forced to do it by a European Union, not by the United States. So, and I'm also a little annoyed that the USB-C they put in there is the slowest specification they I know, possibly it's could. Not even, yeah, it's not even full like USB 3.3 or whatever. They the don't care is. about the consumer that much, other than getting you to love their market enough to to get in. What they care about is driving money from you to them for a long period of time, making things sticky to them, and annoyingly. It is they make good stuff, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, they're yeah. good. They make good stuff. Yes, Let's not do. even get into the Apple Vision Pro, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm sure you've already got pre-ordered. No, I didn't. I uh, I did not. And I'm a VR oh. lover, and I wanted to pre-order it when it was announced. I would have even paid that amount of money, but I think it's going to be floppity flop flop. Dang! Wow. Corey uh, found an Apple product that he does not like. The version of it will be fine, but this version of it is not going to have AR or VR. It's a it's a nice yeah. movie screen for airplanes that you paid way too much for. Oh, that's super dumb. That's wow. my feeling right wow. now. Maybe one day they'll actually have some real VR and MR apps. And maybe then we can sideload them as well, too, thanks to the European <laughs> Union. That'd be nice. <laughs> Either way, though, uh, this year is going to be an exciting year for iOS, at least for European citizens. Uh, I am eagerly awaiting March when this change comes through and then watching to see what this actually brings. Yeah. And well, it I hope it does security. end up with changing security for the better. But yeah. I'm sure there will be some hiccups on the way. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Instagram at watchguard underscore technologies. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week. I can't wait to see Mark's TikTok dance video to advertise the 443. I will never install that app on my phone ever, <laughs> as long as I live. <laughs>